This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk about the idea of freedom during the Cold War. For that, we turn to Louis Menand. His new book is The Free World, Art and Thought in the Cold War. He's a staff writer for The New Yorker. He teaches English at Harvard, and he won a Pulitzer Prize for his last book, The Metaphysical Club. We talked about it here. And he was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President Barack Obama, along with Wynton Marsalis and Terry Gross. Luke Manand, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, let's start with what this book is not. It's not a book about the cultural Cold War, the official use of culture as a weapon against the Soviet Union, for example, sending Duke Ellington on a world tour as an example of American freedom. And it's not about Cold War culture, the way American films and novels and paintings expressed ideas about the Cold War. For example, my favorite, the movie Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where the pod people look just like your neighbors, but their minds have been taken over by a sinister and alien force. So what is this book about? So this is just a cultural intellectual history focused on the period 1945 to 1965, that is to say from the end of the Second World War to the year the U.S. intervened militarily in Vietnam. And uh, the Cold War is definitely an important context for that history, but it's not the only context. So I try to put it in its, in its proper perspective, looking at it from the point of view of the people who were making works of art and composing music and writing books in that period. It's a big book, 726 pages of text and covers pretty much everything. I want to take a few key examples that I hope illuminate the larger issues. The first writer to use the term Cold War to describe the post-war world was George Orwell. Of course, his book 1984 was the key work here, published in 1949, sold 2 million copies by 1956. When, when I read 1984 in high school, I was taught the book was about what the United States would look like if the communists took over. We'd have Big Brother is watching you and the Ministry of Truth and War is Peace. But was that Orwell's purpose to warn against a communist takeover? I don't think that it was. It's interesting that right after the war, Orwell wrote an, an article saying that he worried about various possible futures, and one of them was that there would be a Cold War. So from Orwell's point of view, what 1984 shows is what it would look like if the world were engaged in a Cold War, which would be these interminable and unwinnable struggles between these massive superpowers. In the novel, as you remember, there's, there's three of these sort of enormous states, Eurasia, East Asia, and Oceania, and they're constantly fighting with each other and then changing their alliances and fighting all over again. I think what Orwell had in mind there was the relationship between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, who were allies until they weren't. Um, but that's what he worried would happen. He actually says in this article, it'd be better if we just all got wiped out by nuclear bombs oh. because we start over again oh. than, if we, than if we entered into this struggle. But that book became a Bible for cold warriors uh, on every point in the political spectrum because it seemed to them to indicate what the world would be like if we didn't fight a cold war. So – Totalitarianism was the first big theme of Cold War thought, which was, of course, the opposite of freedom. And then there was existentialism. Man is condemned to be free. 
even though man has a strong desire to escape from freedom. This is a specific idea you show that arose in a specific context that then became the general idea of the era. Yeah, you know, the 1945, the Germans call it zero hour. And that was true in France too, because once the occupation ended, there was an opportunity to begin again with a clean slate. And lots of people in France had an interest in doing that because their role during the occupation wasn't all that noble. So there was room for a culture here to walk on the stage. And as if on cue, one did, Jean-Paul Sartre. He was ready to run in 1945 with existentialism. And it caught on in France. It became, of course, subject of enormous controversy in France. Uh, and then it spread to the U.S. because it was covered widely in American publications like Partisan Review. And there was a period when existentialism just flooded the cultural field. Everybody thought about jazz and painting and lifestyles in terms of existentialism. So that's, I would say, of, of the post-war schools of thought, that's the first in line. One of my favorite chapters in your book is the one about the family of man, the photo exhibition that opened at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City in 1955. It broke attendance records there. Then it was sent around the country and around the world, eventually to 87 venues in 37 countries seen by 9 million people. The paperback sold more than 4 million copies. I still remember my family's copy. Lots of my friends do. The idea was, quote, the essential oneness of mankind throughout the world, close quote. How did that become such a big deal in the dark days of the Cold War? People loved this show. Uh, so in terms of cultural diplomacy, it was by far the most effective exhibition that the U.S. mounted. What's interesting to me about the re reputation of the family of man, probably because Roland Barthes wrote this famous critique of it, in his first book, Mythologies, uh, is that it's regarded as a kind of piece of U.S. propaganda. So what was interesting to me when I researched it is that the people who really loved the show were the communist press. <laughs> the Daily Worker ran many pieces about how great it was. And when it went to France, which is where Roland Barthes either saw it or didn't see it, uh, the, also the communist press in Paris all published these encomia to the, to the family of man. Why was that? Because that was the Soviet line world peace through common understanding. Uh, that peace was their slogan as freedom was our slogan. So they saw the show as fitting exactly with what the communist propaganda wanted. Um, and when it went to Moscow, when it was part of this big exhibition in Moscow, uh, that the famous exhibition where Richard Nixon and Khrushchev get into the kitchen debate, uh, it was extremely popular uh, in Moscow as well, uh, seen by millions of Muscovites. So uh, so it has an interesting history because it's, it has a reputation of being kind of the opposite of the way it was received. Of course, the message of peace through understanding is an anodyne message, so anybody can sign off on it. <laughs> we need to talk about James Baldwin, who, of course, has had a huge renaissance in the last few years. He started out in the 50s as an expat living in Paris while the early battles over segregation in the South were underway. In 1957, James Baldwin published a piece I learned from your book about William Faulkner, a literary icon in the 50s. White liberals considered Faulkner a man of broad humanist sympathies who understood the Southern point of view and spoke with authority on race relations. Your words. What was Baldwin's piece about? So Faulkner uh, had given this interview in which he said 
he deplored the extremism of uh, anti-segregationists in the South. So this is in 1956. It's just the only movement in the South that was going on was the bus boycott, which is hardly an extremist effort. Uh, and he said that uh, although he was uh, supported uh, integration uh, sort of as a goal, uh, he would go out in the streets and shoot Negroes mm. from Mississippi and the United States. So he probably drunk when he gave this interview, but that didn't prevent people from reprinting it. And I think Partisan Review gave it to Baldwin to write a piece about it, and Baldwin went after Faulkner. That was important because by that, that point, Faulkner won the Nobel Prize. He was highly esteemed. He won two Pulitzer Prizes. He was highly esteemed as an American author. His career rescued after years of neglect. Um, and I think a lot of Northern whites thought he speaks with authority. He's a Southerner who understands the race problem. Lois says, no, where have you been? He said, if you're serious about this. So that was an important piece. He was, he, he was a brave guy, Baldwin. Then Baldwin became a bestseller in 1961 with his essay collection, Nobody Knows My Name, and then his novel, Another Country, in 1962. Then in 63, he was on the cover of Time magazine, but... I was a little surprised to learn from your book he was not universally celebrated by liberals. Hannah Arendt didn't like his work. Susan Sontag didn't like his work. The first issue of the New York Review of Books didn't like his book. Why not? Yeah, the first issue of the New York Review of Books, the very first page is an attack on the fire next time. The reason, I think, is pretty simple. Baldwin's position was that whites, liberals or not, have to own their part in white supremacy. And white liberals don't like to hear that. They don't associate themselves with segregationists, prejudiced people. And there, there was a backlash against Baldwin right at the height of his renown, 1963, when he publishes The Fire Next Time, which is an incredible book. Uh, you start to get people like Sontag attacking him. And I think it really drove him off the main stage. He kind of lost the white audience. And then for a long time, he, career went on for quite a while. His books were neglected or Irving Howe attacked his novels. It was pretty unpleasant. And then, of course, about five or six years ago, he gets resurrected because he's saying the same message that Black Lives Matter protesters said today, which is white people have to own their part in this system. And a lot of white people don't, don't want to hear that. Kind of the end of your story in the mid-60s with the war in Vietnam the idea that the United States was fighting for the idea of freedom did have a, a sudden and dramatic ending. The discovery that the campaign for cultural freedom was being funded by the CIA, that was the work of Ramparts magazine in 1967, which exposed the fact that the CIA had set up a series of dummy foundations which were funneling money to liberal organizations and publications, starting with the National Student Association and including most famously a magazine, liberal magazine called Encounter. As a student, I was hired to do some of the research for that story in Rampart, so I'm very interested in it. Why was CIA funding of the cultural Cold War such a huge thing for American intellectuals? Well, let's just take the example of Encounter magazine. So Encounter magazine was uh, published by the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which is headquartered in Paris, which is ostensibly an independent organization, but actually it was entirely a creature of the agency. And it published magazines in European countries. There was one in Germany, Dermonat, there was one in France, one in Spain, and so on. And Encounter was the one published in London. And the editor of Encounter was a CIA agent. Uh, 
This was not known to the intellectuals who published. Almost every important intellectual you could imagine, the Trillings, Dwight MacDonald, everybody, published an encounter. It was like partisan review, in effect. And uh, they didn't realize that they were being paid by the CIA. And when that comes out, actually a little before the Ramparts piece, but, but not until the Ramparts piece doesn't really blow up in 1967, it casts a light on what everybody had been doing for 20 years, which is to say that intellectuals thought of themselves as independent from the state. They could be critical of the state. They didn't think they were dancing to the state's tune. And suddenly when it turns out they're creatures of the state, they're saying exactly what the state wants them to state. It's a big crisis. Christopher Lash, of course, wrote a very famous article about this. It showed up the kind of hypocrisy of establishment intellectuals in the United States. I think that's an extreme version, interpretation of it, but that's how it was interpreted. So when you get to that point in my story, you look back, you think like, what was really going on here? You know, who was paying the piper, as, uh, as people say. But of course, the defense of all those people uh, who wrote for all those magazines, well, nobody ever told me what to say. And I criticized parts of the United States in my article. But they didn't have to tell them what to say. That's the whole beauty of I it. Mean, they were saying exactly what they were supposed to be saying. It's not true that people didn't get censored. Dwight McDonald famously had a piece killed by encounter that was a little too extremely anti-US. So they, they, you know, they carefully controlled. Same with the NSA. The NSA is the National Student Association. As you say, John, that was the story that Ramparts uh, scooped, uncovered, uh, that started to unravel the whole tapestry. There, too, they were very careful about making sure that the leadership of the NSA, which is a pretty big organization, had international uh, connections and so on, that the leadership was compatible with U.S. policy. There was a crisis looming for the NSA, which was Vietnam. And if the NSA had become anti-war, then it would have been a problem for the government because obviously you couldn't use government money to support an anti-war group. But that's another case where the CIA is just behind the scenes, making sure that everything's running exactly the way the government wants it. So where do we end up with the idea of freedom in the Cold War? Writers in the 50s regarded it as the most important good in life. But today, of course, freedom is a right-wing idea. It's what Republicans say the federal government is taking away from us, us meaning mostly white men, that freedom not to wear masks against COVID-19. Did they inherit that idea from the Cold War critique of totalitarianism? Was freedom mostly Cold War ideology? Does the concept of freedom that we have today have really have any value if we're not Republicans? It's an impossibly mercurial concept. Everybody appropriates it. Martin Luther King uses the word freedom 20 times in the I Have a Dream speech. Mm -hmm. uses the word equality only once. George Wallace uses the word freedom in his inaugural address as governor of Alabama, where he calls for segregation now and forever. Uh, one of the most famous lines about freedom out of 1964 is extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. Barry Goldwater. So everybody's on board the freedom train to the point where it doesn't really mean a whole lot. I think it means something to each person who uses it, but it's very hard to generalize about the meaning of the term. The concept of freedom from the state and so forth is just a deeply rooted in American history, as you know. Um, so it's not something that was invented in 1945. Everybody's on board the freedom train. Louis Menand, his new book is The Free World, Art and Thought in the Cold War. It's a great one. Luke, thanks for talking with us today. Always a pleasure, John. Thank you. Thank you. 
You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.